Psalm 32, an exposition by John Calvin. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man to whom God will not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was changed as with the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto you. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Jehovah. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Writing on the words, verse 3, When I kept silence, my bones wasted away, and when I cried out all the day, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my greenness would turn into the drought of summer. Here David confirms by his own experience a doctrine which he had laid down, namely, that when he was humbled under the hand of God, he felt that nothing was so miserable as to be deprived of God's favor, by which he intimates that this truth cannot be rightly understood until God has tried us with the feeling of his anger. Nor does he speak of a mere ordinary trial, but declares that he was entirely subdued with the extremest rigor. And certainly the sluggishness of our flesh in this manner is no less awful than its hardihood. If we are not drawn by forcible means, we will never hasten to seek reconciliation to God so earnestly as we ought. In short, the inspired writer teaches us by his own example that we never perceive how great a happiness it is to enjoy the favor of God until we have thoroughly felt from grievous conflicts with inward temptations how terrible the anger of God is. He adds that whether he was silent or whether he attempted to heighten his grief by his crying and roaring, his bones waxed old. In other words, his whole strength withered away. From this it follows that wherever the sinner may turn himself, or however he may be mentally affected, his malady is in no degree lightened, nor his welfare in any degree promoted until he is restored to the favor of God. It often happens that those are tortured with the sharpest grief who gnaw the bit and inwardly devour their sorrow and keep it enclosed and shut up within without discovering it. Although afterwards they are seized as with a sudden madness and the force of their grief burst forth with the greatest impetus the longer it has been restrained by the term silence. David means neither insensibility nor stupidity but that feeling which lies between patience and obstinacy, and which is as much a lie to the vice as to the virtue. For his bones were not consumed with age, but with the dreadful torments of his mind. His silence, however, was not the silence of hope or obedience, for it brought no alleviation of his misery. Verse 4. For day and night. Thy hand was heavy upon me. In this verse he explains more fully when such heavy grief arose, namely because he felt the hand of God to be sore against him. The greatest of all afflictions is to be so heavily pressed with the hand of God that the sinner feels he has to do with a judge whose 
indignation and severity involve in them any death, besides eternal death. David accordingly complains that his moisture was dried up, not merely from simply meditating on his sore afflictions, but because he had discovered their cause and spring. The whole strength of men fails when God appears as a judge and humbles and lays them prostrate by exhibiting the signs of his displeasure. Then is fulfilled the saying of Isaiah, The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it, Isaiah 40, verse 7. The psalmist, moreover, tells us that it was no common chastisement by which he had been taught truly to fear the divine wrath. For the hand of the Lord did not cease to be heavy upon him both day and night. From a child, indeed, he had been inspired with the fear of God by the secret influence of the Holy Spirit, and had been taught in true religion and godliness by sound doctrine and instruction. And yet, so insufficient was his instruction for his attainment of this wisdom, that he had to be taught again like a new beginner, in the very midst of his course. Yea, and although he had now been long accustomed to mourn over his sins, he was every day anew reduced to this exercise which teaches us how long it is ere men recover to themselves when once they have fallen, and also how slow they are to obey until God from time to time redouble their stripes and increase them from day to day. Should anyone ask concerning David whether he had become callous under the stripes which he well knew were inflicted on him by the hand of God, the context furnishes the answer, namely, that he was kept down and fettered by perplexing griefs and distracted with lingering torments, until he was well subdued and made meek, which is a first sign of seeking a remedy. And this again teaches us that it is not without cause that the chastisements by which God seems to deal cruelly with us are repeated, and his hand made heavy against us, until our fierce pride, which we know to be untamable, unless subdued with the heaviest stripes, is humbled. Psalm 32, verses 5 to 7. I have acknowledged my sin unto you, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess against myself to Jehovah my wickedness, and you did remit the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore shall every one that is me pray to you in the time of finding you, so that in a flood of many waters they shall not come near to him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall compass me about with songs of deliverance, say love. Verse 5. I have acknowledged my sin unto you. The prophet now describes the issue of his misery in order to show to all the ready way of obtaining the happiness of which he makes mention. When his feeling of divine wrath early vexed and tormented him, his only relief was unfeignedly to condemn himself before God and humbly to flee to him to crave his forgiveness. He does not say, however, that his sins merely came to his remembrance, for so also did the sins of Cain and Judas, although to no profit, because when the consciences of the wicked are troubled with their sins, they do not cease to torment themselves and to fret against God. 
Yea, although he forces them unwillingly to his judgment bar, they still eagerly desire to hide themselves. But here, Jers described a very different method of acknowledging sin, namely, when the sinner willingly betakes himself to God, building his hope of salvation not on stubbornness or hypocrisy, but on supplication for pardon. This voluntary confession is always conjoined with faith, for otherwise the sinner will continually seek lurking places where he may hide himself from God. David's words clearly show that he came unfeignedly and cordially into the presence of God, that he might conceal nothing. When he tells us that he acknowledged his sin and did not hide it, the latter clause is added according to the Hebrew idiom for the sake of amplification. There is no doubt, therefore, that David, when he appeared before God, poured out all of his heart. Hypocrites, we know that they may extenuate their evil doings, either disguise or misrepresent them. In short, they never make an honest confession of them with an ingenuous and open mouth. But David denies that he was chargeable with this baseness. Without any dissimulation, he made known to God whatever grieved him, and this he confirms by the words, I have said, while the wicked are dragged by force, just as a judge compels offenders to come to trial, he assures us that he came deliberately, and David came with full purpose of mind, for the term said just signifies that he deliberated with himself. It therefore follows that he promised and assured himself of pardon through the mercy of God, in order that terror might not prevent him from making a free and an ingenuous confession of his sins. The phrase, upon myself, or against myself, intimates that David put away from him all the excuses and pretenses by which men are accustomed to unburden themselves, transferring their fault or tracing it to other people. David therefore determined to submit himself entirely to God's judgment, and to make known his own guilt, to be himself condemned he might as a suppliant obtain pardon. And you did remit the guilt of my sin. This clause is said in opposition to the grievous and direful agitations by which he says he was harassed before he approached by faith the grace of God. But the words also teach that as often as a sinner presents himself at the throne of mercy with ingenuous confession, he will find reconciliation with God awaiting him. In other words, the psalmist means that God was not only willing to pardon him, but that his example afforded a general lesson that those in distress should not doubt of God's favor towards them. So as soon as they should betake themselves to him with sincere and willing mind, did anyone infer from this that repentance and confession are the cause of obtaining grace? The answer is easy. Namely, that David is not speaking here of the cause, but of the manner in which this sinner becomes reconciled to God. Confession, no doubt, intervenes. But we must go beyond this and consider that it is faith which by opening our hearts and tongues really obtains our pardon. It is not admitted that everything which is necessarily connected with pardon is to be reckoned among its causes. Or to speak more simply, David obtained pardon by his confession not because he merited it by the mere act of confessing, but because under the guidance of faith, he humbly implored it from his judge. 
Also, it's the same method of confession ought to be in use among us at this day, which was formerly employed by the fathers under the law, that sufficiently refutes that tyrannical decree of the Pope, by which he turns us away from God, and sends us to his priests to obtain pardon. Verse 6. Therefore shall every one that is meek pray unto you. Here the psalmist expressly states that whatever he has hitherto set forth in his own person belongs in common to all the children of God. And this is to be carefully observed because from our native unbelief, the greater part of us are slow and reluctant to appropriate the grace of God. We may also learn from this that David obtained forgiveness not by the mere act of confession, as some speak, but by faith and prayer. Here he directs believers to the same means of obtaining it, bidding them betake themselves to prayer, which is a true sacrifice of faith. Further, we are taught that in David, God gave an example of his mercy, which may not only extend to us all, but may also show us how reconciliation is to be sought. The words, everyone, serve for the confirmation of every godly person, but the psalmist at the same time shows that no one can obtain the hope of salvation but by prostrating himself as a suppliant before God, because all without exception stand in need of his mercy. The expression, the time of finding, which immediately follows, some think refers to the ordinary and accustomed hours of prayer, but others more accurately, in my opinion, compare it with that place in Isaiah. 55.6. Where it is said, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. It is never out of season indeed to seek God. For every moment we need his grace, and he is always willing to meet us. But his slothfulness and dullness hinder us from seeking him. David here particularly intimates the critical seasons when believers are stimulated by a sense of their own need to have recourse to God, to papists, have abuses placed to warrant their doctrine that we ought to have advocates in heaven to pray for us. But the attempt to found an argument in support of such a doctrine from this passage is so grossly absurd that it is unworthy of refutation. We may see from it, however, either how wickedly they have corrupted the whole scripture, or with what gross ignorance they blunder in the plainest manners. In the flood of many waters, the expression agrees with that prophecy of Joel, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered, Joel 2, verse 32. The meaning is, that although the deep whirlpools of death may compass us round on every side, we ought not to fear that they shall swallow us up, but rather believe that we shall be safe and unhurt. If we only betake ourselves to the mercy of God, we are thus emphatically taught that the godly shall have certain salvation even in death, provided they betake themselves to the sanctuary of God's grace. Under the term flood, are denoted all those dangers from which there appears no means of escape. At last the psalmist gives himself to thanksgiving, and although he uses but few words to celebrate the divine favor, there is notwithstanding much force in its brevity. In the first place, he denies that there is any other haven of safety but in God himself. Secondly, 
He assures himself that God will be his faithful keeper hereafter. For I willingly retain the future tense of the verb, though some without any reason translated into the past. He is not, however, to be understood as meaning that he conceived himself safe from future tribulations, but he sets God's guardianship over against them. Lastly, whatever adversity may befall him, he is persuaded that God will be his deliverer. By the word compass, he means manifold and various kinds of deliverance, as if he had said that he should be under obligation to God in innumerable ways, and that he should on every side have most abundant matter for praising him. We may observe in the meantime how he offers his service of gratitude to God according to his usual method, putting songs of deliverance instead of help.